Well, this morning we're beginning a new five-week series on a book of the Bible that I've never preached through before, and that is the book of Jonah. How many of you are experts in the book of Jonah? Maybe because you've watched too many VeggieTales. How's that? Um, so, Jonah. Jonah's famous, of course, because it's one of the most popular stories that we have growing up as kids in the church, or maybe reading stories, Old Testament stories to your kids. It's kind of one of those amazing stories where you go, this will work. Um, and it has this amazing story about a whale. And I grew up knowing the story of Jonah and the whale. But the problem was, I only thought the point of the story of Jonah was to scare little kids into obedience, otherwise you'll be swallowed by a whale. That was kind of what I grew up thinking Jonah was about. Didn't really enjoy it much after that. And I struggled with it. And of course, every book of the Bible, including the books of the Old Testament, are not there to give us great moral lessons about being better Christians, but they're there to reveal God to us, reveal the nature of God to us, the nature of who we are in our relationship with Him, to encourage us, to equip us, to teach us. And so I thought we should redeem the book of Jonah together, that we look together at what is it that God is saying to us through this amazing book? And it's a book that is more than a fish. In fact, the whale only appears in two to three verses. And in the four chapters, we see something quite spectacular, drawing us into further the heart of God and what He has for us. So let's begin before we dive in to the actual book, let's begin by just understanding what the book is. Jonah is a very unique book of the Old Testament. Whenever you come to study the book, a book of the Bible, you have to first ask yourself, inspired by God, what type of book is this? So that we may honor the Bible as it was written and read it faithfully. So some books of the Bible are poetry in which you read as poetry. Some are historical narrative, which you read as true historical narrative. Narrative, And there's lots of different genres in the book. When we come to the book of Jonah, it's not as simple as you think. It's not as simple as you think. It begins, and we'll see in a minute, it begins with these words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, which would trigger an automatic cue to being a prophetic book. But most of the prophetic books begin with the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or the word of the Lord came to Micah. And you go, ah, this is like one of those. It's a book of messages from God through the prophet to his people, except Jonah isn't like that. Jonah is not a story, or Jonah isn't an account of the sayings of God through the prophet Jonah. It's an account of the prophet Jonah. It's a story about the prophet, which is unique in all the prophetic books. And it's led scholars to consider what type of book is it? And there's two views. And I offer them to you this morning. There's two views into the genre and what type of book Jonah is. On the one hand, there is the view that it is an historical account, a true historical account of a man called Jonah. Jonah did exist, and we'll come on to that in a minute. He appears earlier on in the book of Kings, Second Kings in the Old Testament. He did exist. And so many believe this is an historical account of Jonah. Whereas some look at the style of writing, this, the uniqueness of how it was written, and go, Jonah existed, but this is a form of parable, an Old Testament parable, if you will, using the person of Jonah as a, as a figure 
In the same way that Jesus used Lazarus in one of his parables in the New Testament, inspired by God, but more of a parable than historical narrative. Now, that view is held by Bible-believing scholars, both those views. This is not the right way is one way and the wrong way is the other. Some people interpret the Bible any which way they want, and that's not what I'm saying. But there are these two views amongst scholars who really have a high view of the Bible inspired by God. Now, I grew up thinking, well, the only reason people think this is historical narrative is they don't believe in miracles, right? I used to go, oh, I know, all these people have a cop-out to believing this is historical because they don't believe this story about the fish and like Jonah kind of going into the belly of a fish. And if you kind of don't know what I'm talking about, here's the little potted story of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet, and he's living in kind of modern-day Israel, and God comes to him and says, go to Nineveh, which is this really evil city, and preach the gospel to them. Jonah doesn't want to do that. So he flees, he goes the other direction, and in running away from God, he gets swallowed by a fish. And he lives in this fish in the belly of a whale for three days. And then eventually is spewed out, rather shaken and, and stirred, and then decides, you know, I'm going to go to Nineveh and do what God tells me to do, and I'm going to preach to them. And he preaches to them, and they repent, and it ends with Jonah, you think, should be happy, but he's really upset, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But people often go, well, this can't be real because of this whale thing. But of course, that's not how we ever determine the genre of a book of the Bible. Because there's miracles all over the place, and miracles happen. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead, which is a wonderful miracle. And so, whether you believe in miracles or not has nothing to do with the genre of this book. We need to look at the genre on its own terms, and some say it's historical truth, and some say it's a narrative parable. Now, why do some say it's a narrative parable? They believe, we believe in miracles, so... But even then, why is some people thinking it's narrative parable? Well, that comes down to how it was written. It's a very unique book, which some people suggest this is more of a parable. Even though we believe in miracles, God can do whatever he wants, we still think it's a parable. Let me give you some examples of these literary features that push it maybe in some people's minds towards a narrative parable. The first is this. The story has an incredible lack of historical detail in it. For every other genre which talks about this is an actual historical account, whether it be the Gospels or some of the other uh, books of the Old Testament, there is date and detail all the time. In the year of so-and-so, date after date after date, name after name after name, and then in this book there are no dates and no names except Jonah. Even the king of Nineveh, who would have been kind of the great leader of the known world at the time, no name. So people go, this is interesting, this is very unusual. Secondly, there's a literary feature in this book called um, exaggerated realism. And it's almost as if, as one scholar says, it's kind of like a cartoon in the sense of it exaggerates everything to make a point. And so, for example, the word huge appears 15 times in this letter. There's a huge whale, a huge storm. A huge city, there's this extreme realism going on, which makes it suggest this is more of a parable. 
And then, of course, he flees to Tarshish. So God says, go to Nineveh and tell them about me and tell them to repent from their evil ways. But he flees to the city called Tarshish, which, if you know where Tarshish is, it's kind of like the other end of the world. It's like today going, you know, I'm going to run away. I'm going to go, I'm going to, go to the North Pole. It's this extreme, like the rest of the book. And then thirdly, it has satirical qualities. It's almost like reading a skit from Saturday Night Live. There's, this, there's irony, there's wit, there's humor all over the place. For example, everything is upside down. The good prophet actually turns out to be the bad guy. The bad people repent really easily with probably the worst sermon ever preached. <laughs> you got this irony of names. So we'll come on to it in a minute. Jonah's name means something completely actually to his real character. So it feels not only exaggerated, but it feels this truth through satire. So what is going on? Well, I'll leave it for you. You can go away and you can do your own digging. Is it historical narrative or narrative parable? Both ways, I believe, in miracles. I just want to be faithful to what the text says. But either way, the message is the same. Either way, the message is the same. And either way, what we'll see over the next five weeks is Jonah is used in this book as a representative figure of the nation of Israel, of the people of God, of you and me, for how we can sabotage our lives. How many of you are good at self-sabotage? Yeah, me too. That God has got great things for us. He calls us into his destiny, calls us into a future, gives us a purpose, calls us into these things. But time and time again, what we see in Jonah happens with us. We tend to sabotage our walk with the Lord. And as we begin the year together, this book is a great, courageous and bold look in the mirror to go, ooh, ouch. I think I'm a bit of a Jonah right now. And sometimes God lovingly corrects us, lovingly rebukes us in order to bring us into the good things he has for us. And so at times over the next five weeks, we're going to go, ouch, I think that's me. But God only does that because he loves us. He loves us and accepts us how we come. But he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And so Jonah is one of those, look in the mirror and turn to God and say, God, I hear you. And so let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1, as we look at this incredible book of Jonah. It begins like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The verse opens which, with the words that an original audience of this text would have just kind of eye-rolled and kind of chuckled, where it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. See, people knew about Jonah, and it wasn't great. 
You know, 2 Kings tells a story, the only the reference of Jonah, and that is at the height of the most evil king in Israel's history, the prophet Jonah came along and prophesied favor over him. Only for a few years later, God to send another prophet, Amos, to reverse that prophecy. You know, see, Jonah was not well-respected. And the irony here is, of course, Jonah, his name means dove, and some of Amittai is some of faithfulness, which is like, oh, come on, give me a break. Straight away, we have this figure, "Uh uh-oh, what is Jonah up to again? And we see that Jonah's been asked to go to Nineveh, to preach to Nineveh, to call the Ninevites to repentance. And that would have been, well, absolutely. That's probably the right role for Jonah, because Nineveh is the capital of evil in the world, the capital of the great enemy of Israel who had squashed and tortured and killed many of the tribes of Israel. It was the epicenter of all darkness, the epicenter of all evil. And that was where Jonah was to go and preach. That God's heart was still for the Ninevites to repent and to turn. He hadn't given up. In the beginning of this book, we see God have a heart for those living in darkness and sending one of the overlooked prophets to go and bring revival. Now, see, this is the first point that we see in the book of Jonah, is that no matter how messed up we are, no matter how much we've done in the past that we may think rules us out of what God has for us, God never gives up on using his people. Right at the very start, we have the great challenge of how on earth is Nineveh going to repent? How on earth is that darkness ever going to know the light? How on earth, if it's that extreme, there's no hope? But where there is no hope, God brings hope. But here's the thing. God doesn't see the size of the challenge and look at Jonah and go, no, I'll do this one. God looks at his people, you and me, and he goes, I want to use you. You see, right at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, humanity was created to co-work with God, to bring his blessing, to multiply, to be fruitful, to bring his love and mercy into the world. That God never wants to step in and do it himself, but he wants to use you and me. He loves to use his people. We've all been designed to make a contribution, to step into a purpose for what God called us to do, because that is how we were made. And no matter how bad things get, no matter how big the need and how low we seem we are, he will never give up on his people. He'll never give up on his church no matter how messy it is. He'll never give up on you no matter what you've done and where you've been. He will always say, just as much as I won't give up on Nineveh, I won't give up on you. This is great news for the likes of you and me. At least I know it's great news for me. There were times when I was so clear that I'd done way too much for God to ever use me. I'd been to way too many places for God to ever bring me back. 
I'd cause way too much damage for people to ever want me to be involved. There was a time when I would go to church and sit at the back and hide in the shadows. Not that you're doing that. I love you guys at the back. But I would sit as far back in the corner as I possibly could, knowing that I love Jesus and he saved me, but I've done way too much. I've hurt way too many people to even think that I could contribute ever again. Have you ever felt like Jonah? Have you ever felt, you know what, the best I can hope for is to be on the substitute's bench? The great news is, when God loves at what he needs, what he wants to see for the world around us, when he looks at the great redemptive purpose in the world, he turns around, and you know what? All he sees are Jonas. Because none of us come with our credentials to God and say, use me. We can only ever come with our weakness. You see, we're qualified to be used by God, not because of the good things we've done, but by admitting, actually, we are failures without Jesus Christ. And there's only one thing that ever qualifies you to be used by God for great things, and that is His grace. If you're sitting in the back this morning thinking, I'm not too sure I can contribute anything of good to God. I I think I've been a failure. I think I've been a letdown. I think I've got nothing to add. I think I've done way too much. I think people will be angry if I try and get involved. I think people look at me and go, God could never use him or God never could use her. Well, guess what? Congratulations. You are ripe for God to use you when you throw yourself on his grace. It's great news when we look at Jonah because... We're all Jonas. We've all messed up. We've all been broken. And the only thing that qualifies us to be used by God for his kingdom and his purposes is his grace. And his grace is sufficient. The challenge, of course, is even though God may go, I want to use you. I want to come out of the shadows. Come, come off like the back row of the balcony that I used to be. Come out. I want to use you. The challenge is we've got to say, Yes to that. And as we move on in verse 3, we see that that's exactly the opposite of what Jonah did. In verse 3, we see that he ran away. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Again, this is one of those amazing kind of satirical moments of here's the man of God going, go a few miles to Nineveh, and yet he runs the other direction. Just to show how absurd this is, I have a little map to show you the geography, what we're talking about. Just go up the road to Nineveh, but instead I'm going to go two and a half thousand miles to Tarshish. And that is literally the last known port of the known world before the deep great blue. I'm getting out of here. Again, the eye rolls, yeah, typical Jonah. Typical Jonah. God wants to use him. He'll never force it upon us, but he'll make an invitation, and it's up to us to say yes. But so often, instead of saying yes, We'll make a run for Tashish. You see, why was Jonah running? Why not get caught up in the beautiful things of God? Well, maybe it comes back to the point that this was Nineveh. 
This was go to Nineveh and bring them the good news of repentance. This is go to the dark places, go to the epicenter of evil. I don't know about you, but I sometimes would have shared the concerns of Jonah of this may not go well for me if I go to, if I go to Nineveh. And isn't it true, and it is for me, isn't it true that I sometimes say to God, God, oh, use me, hallelujah, I'll leave a Sunday and go, I'm all yours, Jesus, I surrender all, just take me as like a, just use me as coins in your pocket just to spend out into the world. And then we say, but you know what? I'd love it to be really comfortable. I don't want it to be too dark. I don't, want to be, I don't really want it to be too inconvenient. So like God says, great, I, I got a great assignment for you. Here's the light. You are the light of the world. You've got Jesus in you. I want to take you into the darkness. And you go, that darkness seems pretty dark, Jesus. You know what? I kind of fancy the beaches of Spain. That's really what I'm looking for. Can I just do witness on the beaches over there? You know what? Can I just stay in this beautiful, beautiful resort kind of environment? See, there's a bit of Jonah in all of us. Use me, Jesus! But can I stay in the light? Because it's nice and warm there. I'm all yours, Jesus. But it'd be great if you could do that in a way that, you know, doesn't really mess up my life too much. Oh, man, I don't want to, you know, get into the messiness of people and their brokenness. Ooh, don't want, don't want that. Oh, my, it's going to cost me money. Ooh, don't want that. Oh, no, I might miss episode four. I can't do that. I can't commit. <laughs> I can't do that. We say we're all in, but we're all in with caveats. And the meantime... God is looking at the city of Nineveh in evil, knowing all I need are people to come and bring the light, and I'll be there. I'm going to bring the greatest revival known in all history. I just won't do it by myself. I just want, to, I just want one person to go, and I don't care how good your sermon is. It could be terrible because it's not about your sermon. It's about my anointing. I just want one person to get out of this seat, stop watching Netflix, stop trying to think of themselves, and just get into the darkness with my light, and I'll show you what I can do. But we all, at least in my part, I love me a bit of Tarshish. I'm so proud I look around our community and I see people taking the light into the darkness. For many of you, coming to LA was coming into the darkness. Lord, I don't want to come, but you've called me. I'm so proud of people who faithfully work every week in the Salvation Army. You know, I'm going to give my Thursdays, join Ruth and the team and go down and befriend and love those who are experiencing homelessness right now. I'm so proud of the people who go, I'm going to work with Harvest Home, with women who are pregnant and experiencing homelessness. I'm going to, I'm going to sponsor one of them. I'm going to befriend one of them. I'm going to pray for one of them. I'm going to actually be vulnerable and actually allow them into my life because I want to take the light into the darkness. I'm so proud of people in our church who go, you know what, God has called us to pray for widows and orphans and actually not just pray but do something about it. I'm going to get into the foster care system. I'm going to take these children who've got nowhere to go and I'm going to love on them and who knows what will happen but I want to go in 
to the darkness. I'm so proud of those in our church who go, my, my workplace is, is pretty rough. My workplace is pretty dark. But you know, God's called me not to the light, but to take the light into the darkness. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to love. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to respond with bitterness. I'm going to respond with kindness. I'm going to try and turn the tide and see his kingdom come in this environment. There are so many in our church who go, I'm not going to run to Tarshish. But I'm going to look for the miracle in Nineveh. I don't expect God to move in the darkness. But it takes the courage to go, Jesus, I'm following you. You see, so many people will look at you and go, what are you doing? What are the, this is dark. What are you doing? This is uncomfortable. What are you doing? And I remember Jesus going to the cross, going to the darkness of his own Nineveh, the cross, and going, that's where I need to go. And even his disciples said, Jesus, don't do it. Things are going well over here. It's dark. But Jesus knew that he had come as light of the world into the darkness. And he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. God's call on your life will be into the darkness. Will be into the Ninevehs of our society. And it's in the Ninevehs that we see the greatest revivals. Many of us are thinking, oh, yeah, I'd love to see God move in my life. Oh, I long for the days where I feel his presence so powerfully and rich. Oh, I'd, I'd long for the days where I see, have prophetic words and words of knowledge. Oh, I'd love for the days where I just am overwhelmed by the presence of God. Oh, I'd, I'd long for those days when I see him do miracles. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd just love those days to come again. And you're saying all this thing and you're on the boat to Tarshish. And God says, you'll find me in Nineveh. You'll find me in the darkness. Maybe it's time to stop running to comfort, convenience. And start to roll up your sleeves and go, Jesus, I'll go with you into the darkness. But there's a second reason that Jonah fled to Tarshish. And it, he confesses it later on in chapter 4. It's not just that it was dark and thought, oh no, what's going to happen? But there was a deeper reason why Jonah refused to go to Tarshish. See, just catch up with the story now. Jonah runs away in chapter 1 and he he falls overboard, he jumps overboard into the ocean. We'll get onto that in a couple of weeks. He gets swallowed by a whale. He's living in this whale for a few days. He gets vomited out and he goes, oh, it's pretty wet and sloppy, I'll go to Nineveh. And so he goes to Nineveh, he preaches, and they all come to repentance. After he does like a five-word sermon, the worst sermon in the world, and they all repent. Then chapter four finds Jonah not triumphant, not praising God, but miserable. And angry at God. And he says, God, this is why I didn't want to go to Tarshish. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. It's on the screen here. But Jonah, but to this, Nineveh repenting, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew. I knew what you're like. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were compassionate, 
slow to anger and abandon love. I knew that you were a God who relents from sending calamity. See, I knew that you would forgive them. I knew it. You're so loving. <laughs> You're all this mercy guy. I knew it. And I don't want that. I never wanted that. You see, this is why I love the beauty of Jonah. It goes where some other books of the Bible don't go. Maybe you've never gone before, which is those deep moments of vulnerability and honesty before God where it's like, you know what? If I'm going to be honest, God, I don't want that. I love that you saved me. I love that you're in my life. I love that you've forgiven me. But I have a lie. I don't want that, and I'm not going to participate. We all have an innover where we draw the line. God, how could you ever forgive him? I will never forgive him what he's done. God, I will never go back to that church. I'll never go to church. I'll never trust again after what they did. Don't ask me to. It'll never happen. God, I will never give generously I'll never give sacrificially. Don't command me to do that. You know I'm not going to. You don't know where I've. You know where I've come from. God, don't ask me to try again because I tried and, and it didn't work out. Don't ask me. I have a line. I'm not going to Nineveh. I know what you want, but I'm not doing it. I just think in our hearts, in our worship, in our praise, in our high-fiving each other, in our lives, in many of us, there's a little world where we go, God, you'll never get me to do that. The problem is that little world is destroying you like it destroyed Jonah. He thought, you know, I need to bury this. That's a no-go zone for God. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to let him go there. I just got to run away. Because every time you come into God's presence, you feel that, what about that? And you go, no, I'm not doing it. And you run away. And you think by running away, by avoiding, by burying, that it will lead to a better life. But before you know it, you end up inside the belly of a whale. See, sometimes God allows you inside the belly to wake you up to what he really wants to do in your life. And sometimes you go, you know what, God, but I know if I go to Nineveh, if I go there, if I forgive that person, if I allow that person back into my life, if I actually resolve that conflict, if I actually do that, if I do this, Lord, if, if I do that, it's going to be death. It's Nineveh. But you don't know that in God's hands, Nineveh is the place of revival. Nineveh is not the place of death, but in God's hands, when he takes you there, it's the source of life. Many of us are running away, thinking it will lead to life, but we're running away from life. What's the Nineveh in your heart? 
Is it a relationship that you go, I just can't go there? Is it a calling that you go, God, I'm just too scared? Maybe he wants you to do something, or maybe he wants you to stop doing something. You just go, God, just leave it. But you see, what we see in this story is God doesn't leave it because he loves you too much. He loves you too much to let this no-go zone, this Nineveh, destroy your life. And in the power of the Spirit, with him holding your hand, he wants to walk you to Nineveh and do a miracle. And do a miracle. So there's a Jonah in all of us. A Jonah that says, golly, I want to be used by you, God, but not, not too difficult, please. Maybe you need to stop running away from difficulty and convenience and comfort and find God in the challenge. Or maybe it's the no-go zone. Maybe you're Jonah and gone, God, I have a line. But maybe that is exactly the place where God has you. So he can deal with that issue once and for all. Whatever it is. He is slow to anger, rich in love, abounding in compassion. And there was another man who went to a dark place. His name was Jesus. He went to the cross. And there were people around him saying, don't go, don't go. And in fact, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and said, God, is there any way I cannot go here? Because it looks dark. It looks painful. Is there any other way? But it was in the cross that the greatest miracle happened. And as Bishop Armour said last week, the cross is never the destination. But after every cross comes resurrection. And I'm praying for you this morning that as Jesus went to the cross, as Jonah eventually went to Nineveh, that you go there too. You go to your Nineveh and say, God, I need, to, I need your help. I need your wisdom. Maybe you need friends in your life to give you wisdom of how to deal with that problem. But it's because he wants to heal you and he wants to pour out his spirit and bring life where there once was death. Let's stand together.